Hello, and welcome to this podcast from Consider This. Please let me know what you think and tell others about us on social media. This podcast was originally broadcast live on Northumberland 89.7 FM. You can hear this show live every Friday at noon. Thank you for downloading this program, and I hope you enjoy it. Hello, I'm Robert Washburn, and welcome to Consider This Northumberland, a current affairs program dedicated to the issues facing our community. We talk to the people on the front lines and those behind the scenes who make a difference in your life in Northumberland County. So I'm asking you, the listener, to take some time out of your busy day to consider this. Going to work can be deadly. Earlier this week, Canadians took a moment of silence to remember people who had died or were injured on the job. It is called the Day of Mourning. What makes this year's commemoration more significant is the number of workers who have died or become sick from COVID-19. As these deaths appear to most of us as figures in daily reports, the stories behind them are chilling. While most of us associate outbreaks with seniors' homes and long-term care, the majority are actually happening in the workplace. As of this week, Educational workers, that is, teachers and others who work at schools, represent the largest number of outbreaks in Ontario. There have been 282 outbreaks at schools. Next, the largest number of outbreaks have occurred in other workplaces. We're talking about manufacturing, distribution centers, food processors, and similar operations. These line workers, drivers, nurses, and doctors, they make up 240 workplace outbreaks. It involves hundreds of workers each time. As yet, nobody has firm numbers about how many actual workers have become sick or died due to the pandemic. We all know someone who is working in this pandemic, whether it is a family member, friends, or the cashier at the grocery store. People deemed essential risk their lives daily. Today's show focuses on those people. First, there is an interview with Noreen Rizvi, the regional representative for Unifor, one of the largest unions in Canada. She is responsible for Northumberland County. We will talk to her about the day of mourning and the challenges all workers are facing. Here is my interview with Noreen Rizvi, the representative of Unifor who oversees Northumberland County. I'm so pleased to have with me today Noreen Rizvi, the Ontario Regional Director for Unifor. Welcome to Consider This Northumberland. Thank you very much for having me. I want to start out with something very basic and ask you, what is the National Day of Mourning? So the National Day of Mourning, uh, really, uh, for us, all workers, I think it's a day to remember and really honor the lives of those uh, who have uh, who are no longer with us, who went to work but did not come home uh, or who got injured on the job. And uh, it's not just about remembrance, but it's about uh, remembering and then coming together Uh, with a collective action on how we prevent any further death or injury. And the idea really is that a worker should go to work safely and come home every single evening safely. Now, in the past, we've acknowledged the loss of workers due to injury or death. But this year seems a bit different in the context of the pandemic. How has the pandemic drawn into focus the significance of the health and safety of workers? I I think, you know what, this has been uh, absolutely... uh, an unprecedented time. Uh, We've had to 
come together as a community, uh, employers, government, really all stars and stripes of, uh, of what keeps our economy going to figure out how do we make sure that uh, you know, uh, that, that we continue to go to work and come back safely. And it's, it's been very unprecedented because of the way that this virus is transmitted. Um, you know, mostly when uh, we look at health and safety, occupational health and safety, health and safety laws uh, in terms of injury and, and uh, you know, fatality prevent, uh, preventment, uh, it's very different than uh, airborne viruses. Uh, something that we haven't been used to. Uh, we've had epidemics, we have not actually had a pandemic. And so, you know, this was the first time where we had to come together as a union and really work at the speed of light, trying to figure out what would an infectious disease pandemic plan look like so that we could uh, work with our health and safety reps, train them and get them out as fast as they can into the workplaces because we have a lot of essential workers. We have a lot of workers who, uh, and thank God for them, they are our COVID heroes, have kept us going. But when they go to work, what are the kind of things that uh, they need to stay safe and come home safe? And it's not as easy as making sure that, you know, uh, there's nothing lying around to prevent trips and falls. That's not the way it goes in this. Uh, there's some very different uh, tools that we needed to give to our health and safety reps. Uh, we needed employers to understand their responsibility in putting together a pandemic plan, in putting together an infectious disease plan, in ensuring that workers knew their rights uh, and that they were able to exercise their rights and that, you know, um, that they worked with, uh, our, with workers so the workers' voices were at the table. Uh, that is generally the best way to uh, move forward anyways, uh, and, and it works really well in a unionized environment, but it was very, it was critical this time uh, that we did that. Can you share a story, maybe one or two examples of the kinds of things that uh, your members have had to do and, and some of the steps that they've had to take to ensure their safety uh, in the pandemic uh, at work? Yeah, so, uh, you know, in, in many of our workplaces, um, we have come together uh, to, you know, look at the workplace and see where the exposures are, where are the hazards, when, you know, to really go through the time and motion of you walk through the door, who's around, how close are they, uh, what are the hazards, who do you come in contact with, all of the people you come on, in contact with, and how do we prevent some of those hazards, remove some of those hazards and where they can't be? How do we make sure that, uh, you know, those are, uh, those hazards are uh, then, um, you know, worked around in a safe manner? We've had to do that in auto plants, uh, in our gaming industry, which still hasn't been open. Uh, you know, they've put in an incredible amount of health and safety uh, uh, features, whereas, you know, you're at a table, now you have plexiglass all around you, um, the, 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 you know, you're actually signing out a slot machine for a certain period of time. Those are very different things that we've never really had to contemplate in, uh, in you know, the idea of health and safety. The very first place that we had, um, you know, obviously our healthcare sector and retail. In retail, it was uh, how do we make sure retail workers are safe? And right away, we talked to uh, employers almost the first uh, week uh, last March, a year ago. Within the first week, we had conversations about how do we you know, stop the flow of an incredible amount of people walking in? How do we make sure that there's you know, some sort of a barrier between 
the, the person working at the cash uh, and, and uh, customers? Um, what about people touching food and all of those things? Nothing that we've ever had to do before. But it was like the, the, the thing, the question to ask was, how does this disease and virus transmitted? And if so, what, how do we prevent it while we're still continuing to work? We've seen stories reported in the news media around uh, some of the horror stories that some and some of the working conditions that uh, some people have uh, had to work in during this pandemic. What have you done to to stem those tides and, and to respond to those kinds of news articles where we've seen such uh, egregious breaches? Yeah, you know, uh, I think the most powerful thing that turns people's hearts and minds makes policymakers uh, listen, make employers take notice, are personal narratives. And um, I'll share a story that, you know, to me was, uh, it was startling, it was, uh, you know, it was shocking, but it was actually devastating because they were essential workers. Our healthcare workers, our personal support workers, uh, very early on in the long-term care facilities, and now we saw, uh, you know, COVID burn through our long-term care um, sector, and it was absolutely devastating. And it was there was a huge feeling of helplessness. There was a period of time where there wasn't enough uh, PPEs because the government had actually, you know, we weren't manufacturing our own. We weren't. We didn't have a uh, Ontario-made, uh, you know, made in Ontario um, sort of a, a strategy. We we didn't have PPEs, and our members actually had to find ways to protect themselves in the very beginning where employers didn't think it was that they had to supply PPEs. So there were these pictures of our, of our when our members called in to say, uh, you know, we have no gowns and we have no masks and we're going in uh, and, and, and it's an inferno because there's 80 residents in this uh, long-term care facility that, are, that have COVID. They had to wear garbage bags. And they put these garbage bags on themselves and they worked in those garbage bags for like 14 to 18 hour days while they took those pictures. And you know what? That's a personal, powerful narrative and community cannot get behind that that is an okay way to work, that that is okay for our seniors uh, to be living under those conditions and that those workers who have to work with our seniors and take care of our most vulnerable should have to wear garbage bags. And so those pictures were entirely powerful. And sometimes it's not about writing uh, a big, long, you know, uh, op-ed or, or launching a massive campaign. Sometimes, it, sometimes it's that very powerful image where you're seeing a personal support worker still going in to take care of the residents, still doing their job. And now they're dressed in garbage bags because their employer does not believe that they have to supply them with PPEs and the government does not have a stockpile. So that was very early on. And, uh, you know, I think some of those, uh, what, what we found from those uh, images was that the narrative that was most powerful in this pandemic to make, bring about change was the workers' voice, their stories, not anybody else's, but exactly their lived experience. And that is what we've continued to do in Unifor. That was a year ago. What's the situation like today for those people? Uh, in, in long-term care, I think, you know, things have uh, gotten slightly better, uh, but now, you know, and, and I say that with a lot of caution because it was a different COVID variant. 
back then. And today, it's a very uh, deadly variant, uh, very different. The transmission is different. Um, you know, uh, so I, I, I think the fear is still there. And you also have to remember, these workers have been working for a year. And the first uh, eight to nine months were under horrible conditions where there was no PPEs, um, you know, where they had to work extra long hours, where staff uh, that had COVID were not replaced. And so they're exhausted already from a year. You're not looking at, a, at, at staff that are currently in there that are, you know, feeling somewhat in control. They're, they, they have gone through absolute exhaustion. Everybody knows that there is not enough personal support workers to be uh, working in those facilities. Those are still the conditions out there. Just because they have a mask and just because they have gloves and just because they have a gown doesn't mean that it's changed uh, their working conditions. Do you have any idea the number of workers who have died or become sick on the job over the past year due to the virus? In our union, uh, in Ontario, um, we've had uh, 14, over 1,400 uh, members who have tested positive for COVID. We have lost five lives um, as a result of COVID. The majority of those, uh, the, the transmission has been in healthcare, almost close to 800 of them. And then of course there's retail and manufacturing, anywhere where it's sort of a congregate uh, uh, you know, facility, that's, that's where we've seen transmission, obviously. And that's out of how many total members? Uh, we have 160,000 members in Ontario. What is the pandemic teaching us about working conditions in Canada? Wow, it's teaching us a lot around working conditions. It's teaching us a lot around what's missing in social uh, uh, nets in our society. Um, I, th I think, you know, one of the things that is clearest um, that we always said, but it wasn't always clear to others, uh, were, was the fact that, you know, you needed, uh, you know, better wages, paid sick days, people should not be coming into work sick at a time where I suppose back when, uh, if the government was to look at it, would think, well, it's just a normal, you know, uh, sort of everyday flu. Today, that, that flu is deadly. And, um, and, and I think that, you know, some of those measures that are just really very easy to implement would have changed if, if had we already had that would have changed the trajectory of Ontario today, making minimum wage uh, and, and having to work through this pandemic, putting yourself in harm's way, not having uh, any pay when you need to stay home if you're sick, having to weigh the odds of should I uh, stay home and lose a few days of pay, or should I get to work because I, you know, uh, I, I won't be able to pay my bill. Those are the kind of things that no worker in Ontario, in Canada, should have to think about. And uh, that's, you know, that's been highly problematic. I think the other thing that has, this pandemic has really taught us is how inequitable um, our workplaces are in the sense that who are truly essential and what do they look like? What's the demographic of those people, right? The people that are staying home and are able to stay home and make really good salaries or are able to be paid uh, when they're off sick, those are not the people that we relied on through this pandemic to stock our shelves and, and to take care of us. But the people that we rely on the most, the essential workers, 
you know, those are the ones that are contracting the disease. And when you look at their demographic, there are your people of color, there are your, uh, you know, racialized workers, they're the ones that are, that have no choice but to live in a multi-generational home that has, you know, two and three generations of people in, in condo buildings that are, you know, that, that you couldn't even possibly socially distance if you tried. And so the inequities are all showing up through this pandemic. You've said a number of important points. I'd like to go back and maybe tease out uh, a few of those. There is a major effort right now to get uh, the provincial government to give workers paid sick days. Can you tell us about why this is such a big issue right now? Well, first and foremost, the Premier's own science table has said one of the six pathways out of this pandemic is paid sick days. In Peel, there was a very important uh, study that was done by the Peel Public Health Unit, and they surveyed over 8,000 people. 2,000 people uh, admittedly went to work uh, with symptoms, and 80 of them went to work confirmed with COVID. And, but you have to think about why is that? If they were paid the exact same amount of money that they would have had they gone to work, if they were paid the exact same amount of money to stay home, they would have stayed home, right? And so paid sick days is, is highly important. And I think it's it has been incorrectly viewed by employers as time off. It's actually to stop transmission of illness to others. And it is actually a public health safety measure. And it's actually the responsible thing to do. And quite honestly, the cost of business. You don't want to have somebody come in and uh, you know, infect the rest of your uh, staff and your, your, your customers. I think there's a responsibility that is on employers that has been shirked for a very long time. Um, and we have been uh, huge advocates of paid sick days. When the pandemic first started last March, I wrote to the premier and, and called on uh, uh, the need for paid sick days immediately. So that if you're sick, you're not sitting there and thinking, should I, you know, I'm not feeling good. Should I go? Should I not? No, no, you should stay home. It's the responsible thing to do. If we force people to go to work because they're essential, then we should give them the choice to stay home when they're sick. Now, some people may be listening to this and say, but people abuse that, you know, they're not sick, but they, they take a paid sick day. How would you respond to those people? Uh, you know, listen, in, in everything in life, uh, there's always going to be your one-off, right? And that's not how you, uh, you put together responsible uh, public policy. You don't look at the one or two uh, bad apples. That's not how you do it. And today, I would be hard-pressed to hear those same people say that. Today, when you're seeing transmissions of 4,000, 5,000, when you're hearing ICU doctors, critical care doctors, uh, you know, talking about the fact that they have no, no beds left, that they're having to think about triaging certain people. When you see pictures of the Brampton Hospital with a tent outside ER, that, that that's where you're going to be standing and waiting uh, before you can come in. I, I, I don't think anybody could argue that anymore today because you know, uh, the fact is that it is too dangerous. Today, it is way too dangerous. This pandemic has taught us this lesson that should not be unlearned. We should not turn around and say, okay, the pandemic is over and let's make sure that the abusers don't get this. That's not the way it should go. Because the people that need it the most 
we have just seen the racialized workers, the marginalized workers, the people of color, the essential workers, the young people that are going in uh, to grocery stores, people stocking our warehouses. We should have a responsibility to think that all of those people are there in good faith. They want to earn an, a decent, honest living. They're helping us get through every single day and we owe them something, not the one or two bad apples are going to take it away from everybody else. Now, being sick is not like an injury, but we have seen cases where people have become seriously ill for extended periods of time. The recovery is very slow. What is being done to help those workers who are long haulers? With COVID, you mean, or just yes, with, co with COVID? Sorry. Yeah, uh, you know, you're right. Uh, I, I think there's been this. Uh, that's something that isn't really spoken about enough, um, I think. Uh, there's this idea that you get COVID and you get over COVID. And then, uh, you know, thankfully, there's a lot of uh, people who have recovered from COVID who have come back to say, this is, you know what, it's been a year. And I actually can't hear the same way anymore. I can't taste the same way anymore. Things in my life have changed. And we haven't, because I think we're still in the process of catching up to this pandemic and somehow getting ahead of it, that we haven't gotten to the point where what does recovery look like and is it full? And if it isn't, then what are the new accommodations that are required for people uh, to be able to get back? And, and is there ever a full recovery? Do you come out of this in a year, in a year and a half? Uh, and, and in fact, are there permanent accommodations that are required at your work? And we are not there yet. Um, and I'm scared to see that we, we likely will. When you hear about artificial lungs being used, the ECMO machine treatment, when you hear about artificial lungs being used and the damage to lungs through uh, COVID-19, you have to assume that there's going to be long-term uh, uh, repercussions on this. And, uh, and we're gonna have to deal with all of those and employers will have to pay attention that these workers, especially their employees who may have gotten this on the job, there's some level of responsibility to make sure that, you know, that, that they continue to work are part of this community in a very whole way. We watch as some employers have provided temporary bonuses to those who are essential workers and then they've had, taken them away. And in some cases recently uh, been reinstated. What does this tell us about fair pay? Oh boy, this fair pay, this, is, this has gotta be one of my biggest uh, uh, beefs. To be honest with you, uh, especially in retail where uh, as you, what you're saying is uh, the Canadian Tire and Loblaws um, news uh, releases that just came out that they, you know, uh, their executives received significant bonuses um, because of the amount of money that they've made through the pandemic, because people were, you know, uh, e-commerce has gone up. Uh, retail, uh, people are buying, you know, groceries, stocking up on all kinds of things. They have made money. Some, some types of sectors have really taken a beating and others have done exponentially well, but they have not thought about sharing that with their employees. The retail sector, I was extremely disappointed when they first gave the, what they called a hero pay. Some places they call it a pandemic pay. It was a $2 increase um, to hourly wage. And then they took it away, all of them at the same time. And there was some conversations uh, where they had you know, been pulled in by the government to see whether this was collusion or not. 
because uh, how is it that it all came in at the same time and it was all gone at the same time? And that you know their position was that that things are better. <laughs> I mean, we are in our third wave of the pandemic. We are seeing more uh, employees uh, and workers that are uh, getting um, COVID on the job every single day in retail. You're, we're seeing this. And yet they haven't, you know, there's only been one out there right now that has come out and said, look, we're going to do this. We're going to do this because it's the right thing to do. And the others have thought, no, we're going to give the money to the, our executives, not the frontline workers who have gone in and put themselves in harm ways. But I bet those executives are all working from home, safe, but they get the bonuses. You see this in uh, the retirement home sector as well. They received massive bonuses for a job well done. Well, what happened to our retirement homes, our nursing homes, and our long-term care sectors? I don't know. Like, did everyone suddenly have amnesia? Ask the people who lost their loved ones. They'll remind you. It's interesting to watch as the government has deemed particular workers essential and others not. Now, workers have the right to refuse unsafe work, yet during the pandemic, going to work in places where you can be exposed to a deadly virus does not seem to qualify. I'm, I'm curious, as someone who represents working people, what are your thoughts on pushing people to work through the pandemic? Well, it, you know what, it's, it's a very, I think it's a struggle uh, for essential workers. And I, I hear this from our healthcare workers all the time, as scared as they are, their, their duty as to why they went into these jobs, their own responsibility to their residents or to their community uh, is so strong it outweighs uh, their own safety. And, uh, and, and you have to really give a lot of gratitude to that, but not just in words, you know, in actually creating a safe environment, paying them uh, a fair wage, paying them uh, what they deservedly get when they make your business successful. Um, you know, for us, uh, you know, in a unionized environment, it's, it's a lot easier for workers to have an advocate who turns around and says, this is, un you know, and, and we've, we've done this throughout this last year, whether it was in the healthcare sector, long-term care sector, we were on them, whether it was the government or the employers, we were absolutely on them and, and put a ton of pressure when it was identified that, that you know, whatever hazard there was in the workplace around COVID, that it was dangerous and workers did not want to work. We, you know, we were working right through it and employers responded quickly. But I, I, I fear for those who don't have an advocate, who don't have a representative, who, if, they, if they're lucky enough to know their rights and that they have a right to refuse, will not exercise it because likely they may not have a job to come back to. In, there are inequities in the workplace. We've seen white collar workers, and you've mentioned this, can e more easily work from the safety of their home compared to blue collar workers who often need to be at a physical location to do their job. Has this pandemic brought this contrast into more stark light because of the pandemic? And what does this mean in terms of seeking fair treatment or equal treatment? Yeah, I, it absolutely, you know, there is a, it's like a, you know, light and day, night and day type uh, comparison. And, you know, uh, on top of that, I think uh, what we went, saw last year down south um, with uh, the murder of George Floyd also uh, exponentially uh, exasperated that because really what that, what employers did after that 
quite a few employers, they recognize that just putting out a statement to say, you know, we, we condemn this isn't enough. And they turn around and said, okay, by 2021, we're going to make sure that we have X amount of BIPOC people working for us, uh, that X amount of people of color are going to be now in our senior management. We're at 3%. Our aim is at 20%. We tended to hire a certain uh, demographic. Now we're going to hire from colleges where they're, you know, uh, predominantly uh, black people and so people of color. And so that is actually, you know, those are the kinds of systemic changes that are needed so that the stark difference that you're talking about actually evens out. Um, and so people need to recognize that and, and really and truly they need to recognize when you say this person is essential to the lives of people, to public safety, there needs to be a different level of pay that is, uh, that is associated with that. Um, and, I, and I think that as we move out of the dangers of this pandemic, I, I imagine that that path that is being carved out uh, between the sort of imbalances between white collar jobs and blue collar jobs, but who are actually needed uh, are, is going to create a different level of conversation that's going to be validated with evidence. And I think people are gonna go after that and you know, I'll, we'll be right behind them. The impact of the pandemic on women uh, has been very noticeable. What has the union done to support women who have faced a lot of the brunt of the pandemic? And what do you see taking place in regards to the women you represent? Yeah, God, this, uh, the pandemic has been, you know, even if you look at uh, unemployment levels and who uh, has lost more, who, uh, you know, women are more underemployed uh, than men. Um, and in terms of, you know, even safety, uh, if we watch through uh, what happened with the pandemic, when you put um, stay-at-home orders and lockdowns, that can sometimes be very dangerous. That's not a safe place for some women to be. And we were really, because we do a lot of advocacy work on you know, domestic violence, uh, safety of women, um, you know, uh, gender balance, uh, gender pay, uh, pay equity, all of those things, childcare, we made sure through the pandemic that there were two things. One, that everything had an equity lens and two, that everything had a gender lens. Um, so in terms of uh, recommendations to premiers and to the prime minister's office and to and public policy and a public facing campaign, while we had the campaign, we made sure what are the gender pieces in this that need to be recognized and put forward? And how does this affect and impact the most marginalized person? So that we made sure that those two things did not fall off the tracks. Um, because it's true, women were hurt significantly more in terms of uh, loss of employment. We also know that retail was the only growth in terms of jobs. And so if there was anything, that's where they were going to go. And that they were, they were significantly and disproportionately overrepresented in jobs where they were, were uh, essential, had no choice to go into work, and were in harm's way. And so in healthcare, for example, in retail, for example, that's where uh, you know, our, we have the most amount of women working. A lot of them are single, uh, parent, uh, single uh, parents. 
They had trouble uh, accessing childcare at a time where there was lockdown. There was all kinds of things that set women back. Uh, but importantly so, we paid really close attention to what was happening uh, overseas in terms of the numbers of domestic violence um, and intimate partner violence numbers going up. And really quickly, we made sure that our women's advocate programs were in place, uh, that we had on our website uh, resources for women uh, to turn to. We made this a broad conversation, a constant conversation that people, uh, women knew that they could come to their union for help uh, because, you know, I was really concerned about the fact that uh, for some people to stay home is safe and for others, especially if they have a partner who like may have been laid off and now, you know, this, it's not a pleasant situation at home, what, how that could impact them. Is there any reason to believe anything will change out of the pandemic? I think the government will change after out of the pandemic in Ontario, quite honestly, especially after this last weekend. And uh, but I, I do. I, I think generally and genuinely that people have a better understanding of what so many uh, have advocated for, why paid sick days are important. Uh, you know, why having a government that's progressive is important, why certain policy is, is required. I, I think that there's going to be a lot of changes that are going to come out of there. I think people are going to expect more from themselves. I think they're more aware now of themselves and others and their working conditions. And people today care more about somebody else uh, than they probably did pre-pandemic. And as soon as you get to that point, uh, you will have that many more people that will stand beside you when it's your fight because it becomes their fight. Today, for all of those uh, people who have been lucky enough to stay home, uh, to not have contracted COVID, I think they have taken it on as their own fight for those who are forced to go to work, who, are, who have contracted COVID, who have lost their lives uh, to COVID and to those family members. I think that it's mobilized uh, this province, like we will we'll see a lot later. Um, and the folks that are always the advocates out there, the loudest voices that were standing at Queen's Park, you're gonna see a different demographic of people out there today after the pandemic. So what do you specifically see, if anything, shifting towards the, in the public's attitude towards the concerns that you've raised in our conversation? I think that there's going to be a tremendous amount of support. There was a time where, for example, and I, I say this over and over again, paid sick days. I don't know that there was um, in this level of support. Uh, people said exactly what you said. You know what? It's for the, uh, the abuser. Abusers are just going to want to take a day off. That sort of rhetoric is no longer there uh, today because the doctors have come out to say this is how we're going this is one of the six ways we're going to beat this uh, virus which is a medical issue I think paid sick days has sort of uh, the the perception of what a paid sick day is which was a paid day off to do whatever you wanted has shifted to a more medically uh, you know um, sort of uh, a medically prescribed uh, way to control illness, virus, and all the rest of that. I, I think that it has shifted. I think the doctors have today become activists like they've never been before. And uh, people listen to that. And they I don't believe that people view 
some of those uh, necessities in public policy the same way anymore. What should we be watching for in the future? Do you think because of the inequities that have been demonstrated in the thing, types of things we've talked about in our conversation, do you think unionism will spread? Do you think there'll be growth in unionism? Well, we're seeing it for sure. We're seeing it when, when, when you know, workers see our ads and our campaigns around uh, uh, healthcare, we get phone calls uh, because they're scared, right? And when we talk about temp agency workers and how dangerous that work is and how precarious it is and how they need advocates, because, especially in light of COVID, we get people who say, I have no choice but to go to work. Uh, it's not about being paid. It's actually about losing my job. And so those are the type of pe uh, phone calls that we, we've actually seen an exponential uh, growth in terms of we've been organizing almost every week of a new bargaining unit, uh, which is incredible, um, you know, in every sector, quite honestly, uh, we're, we're getting a lot of workers who are calling in and uh, there has been, you know, even organizing in itself has changed. We now do it through uh, a virtual means and um, workers are able to connect and and quite uh, in the last three or four weeks we've had uh, almost every week a bargaining unit that's been certified that has now become a union environment in Unifor. What are you going to be doing on the day of morning? I'll be thinking about my mother who passed away that day three years ago. Um, I'll be thinking about our five members who lost their lives um, and, and how that was so preventable. And we're going to be holding an event to bring our members together to think about uh, those who have been impacted and then to think about what we can do from the lessons we've learned and how do we make sure that workers come home safely every single day. Noreen Rizvi, thank you so much for talking to me today. It's my pleasure, Robert. Thank you so much. That was my interview with Noreen Rizvi, the Ontario Regional Director for Unifor. I want to thank my guests this week for talking to me, and I want to thank all the listeners for tuning in today. Please join me again next week when we will talk to the people on the front lines and those behind the scenes who make a difference in your life and Northumberland County. So please tune in. If you would like to listen or share this or any podcast, please check out my website at consider-this.ca. There you will find past podcasts, news, and other information about life and politics in Northumberland County. Or you can go to the radio station's website at northumberland897.ca. I'm Robert Washburn. Thanks for taking time out of your day to listen in, and I hope over the week you will continue to consider this. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Consider This. If you have any comments or would like to suggest a story, please contact me at considerthisnorthumberland at gmail.com or you can message me on Facebook at Consider This. If you enjoyed this podcast or are looking for more news and information about Northumberland County, please check out my website at consider-this.ca. That's consider-this.ca. And don't forget to share. And again, thank you for listening and stay tuned for more from Consider This.